Good evening. Thanks for being here. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce. My name is Luis Garicano. I'm a professor here at the at the LSE, at the London School of Economics, uh, in the Department of Management and Economics. And um, uh, it's a big pleasure to introduce Edward Hugh. He has a connection with the LSE because he was an undergraduate here, and he left us uh, more than 30 years ago. And he's going to talk us, tell us about something that I think is, is a, a very interesting feature of the current crisis, I think, um, which is the, the, the way that, that macroeconomists who weren't uh, professional macroeconomists in banks and in departments of economics um, were largely ahead of the crowd, uh, largely ahead of the actual professional macroeconomists in understanding what was going on this crisis. Um, I think many of you probably know uh, two or three blocks in the U.S. that have had a big role in, in being ahead. Uh, I think my favorite one is uh, calculated risk. Uh, calculated risk was formed by two people who, one is like some retired engineer and the other person was some woman who sadly passed away, who um, just happened to know extremely well the subprime market in the United States and was very much explaining what those subprime loans actually were before anybody had any idea. And uh, another blog on the same line was Naked Capitalism, which again, I don't think Yves Smith had any, any formal training of any kind and yet was, was really very insightful and very knowledgeable and I think many people were, were following what they were saying. Um, a similar role, I think, in the euro area has been played by Edward Hugh. He has a family of blocks rather than one. I think marketing-wise it would be better to have one, but okay. <laughs> he has a family of blocks in which, on the euro area, and many of them um, really have been uh, very perspective and very, very, very insightful on, on pers very perceptive and insightful on, on what was going on and what the crisis was. And, and what was going to happen, and understanding the interactions between the financial markets, the housing markets, and the macroeconomy. Um, and what I ask Edward to talk about today is basically, there will be substantial content, of course, on, on, the, on the economy itself, but I wanted him to take a little bit of a meta perspective to some extent to tell us why he thinks this is the case, why uh, people sitting in their home in their pajamas in uh, Nebraska or in California or in Barcelona can be far ahead of people earning hundreds of thousands of, of euros uh, or of pounds or of dollars to actually uh, forecast. Uh, partly it's incentives for sure, partly it's, it's, it's other things that are, that are interesting. So without more announcement, I'm, I'm really delighted to have Edward here tell us about um, how the internet changes the practice of economics. Thank you, and welcome back to, to your home. Well, <laughs> thank you, Luis. And, well, thank you, everybody uh, who's here for coming. And I'm very happy to be here again after all these years. And it's a very nice experience. Uh, um, let's, let's go directly uh, to the topic. Uh, as Luis says, we're going to look, really, at why mm, two topics, I think. Why? Um, the internet has helped people who were not necessarily expected to be um, major uh, players in the macroeconomic game participate and on the other hand why economics itself uh, really failed to live up or macroeconomics itself failed to live up to the expectations uh, that people could have had 
before the crisis um, in just out of uh, well an incidental anecdote of course here is Louise in the photograph that uh, everybody must know about with the Queen of England who is asking why the hell uh, all this happened and nobody seemed to notice or not nobody but few seemed to notice before it happened it's a complicated question okay now, if we, if, 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 if we look at the, the, we're talking about macroeconomics here in part, yeah? and one of the questions is, you know, um, why didn't the majority of uh, consensus mac academic macroeconomists really see the crisis coming? Now, Oliver Blanchard, who I, I think is not especially uh, uh, guilty in this regard, I mean, is, is not, uh, I, I'm not putting this up in any way to criticise uh, Olivier. Uh, um, uh, 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 at, at the moment just before the crisis broke out published a working paper that Paul Krugman drew attention to where he says that for a long while after the explosion uh, of macroeconomics in the 1970s the field looked like a battlefield yeah? I mean there were a lot of different opinions over time however largely because of facts uh, do not, because facts do not go away uh, a shared vision both of fluctuations and methodology has emerged yeah not everything is fine, like all revolutions, this one has come with the destruction of some knowledge, blah, 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 but the state of macro is good, there's been a broad convergence of vision. This was the kind of consensus before the crisis broke out. Then, if we look now at something that was just published really last week from the Independent Evaluation Office that studied what the IMF had to say between 2004 and 2007, we found uh, 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 quite a critical document and in the middle of this is this statement that I found. Part of the problem was a similar mindset, let's go back to uh, uh, Blanchard, uh, a, cons uh, a deep consensus has emerged, a similar mindset of many mainstream economists working at the fund to explain why the IMF um, did, didn't really fully anticipate what happened with similar background and training and were not opening to dissenting views. You know, some key words there I think. Hmm? Both inside and, out, been in and outside the fund, there were other economists and policymakers with contrarian views. But their views were not encouraged or closely examined within the fund. You know, and one thing I would just say, how many people really think that's not the situation today, despite the fact we're looking back at it now and reflecting on the situation and saying, a lot of this happened because of this. How many people really think that these... Um, dissenting economists and uh, contrarian views are really being deeply considered in the positions of power in the, in the European Union, the International Monetary Fund or whatever in taking decisions that we all need, know need to be taken in this moment. Yeah, and it's just, just a thought. Yeah? So, well, okay, I'm going to go through this quite quickly because I, you know, I think there are, there, there are things that are more interesting maybe for us to get into in a question and answer session. But, okay, Paul Krugman set up this idea of freshwater and saltwater economists um, and as you said the, the, the economics profession went astray because economists as a group mistook beauty clad impressive looking mathematics for truth you know and this is a theme that seems to run through a lot, a, a lot of the examiners I mean I don't know what uh, the people who are studying economics at the moment really are doing as their, 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 their core subjects but I mean one of the things that drove me away personally, and I came to the LSE to study economics with a love of macroeconomics, away from the idea of pursuing a profession 
as an academic in macroeconomics was his obsession with mathematical models that didn't seem to me to have a great deal to do with the world that, that we were looking at. And, and, and this is part of the problem. And if, we, if we look at another example of a, a macroeconomist, an academic macroeconomist, who's not from the same tradition as Paul Krugman at all, uh, uh, but has thought about the, uh, the, the situation, um, Ricardo Caballero from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. What, what concerns me about my discipline, however, is the current core by which I mainly mean the so-called dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium approach, hmm, has become so mesmerized with its own internal logic that it's begun to confuse the precision it has achieved about its own world with the precision that it has about the real one. So, I mean, one of the problems of these very sophisticated models that macroeconomists play around with is what is the relation between the model and the real world? This is really the question that and, uh, 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 that, that Caballero is asking. And if we get obsessed with the model, do we lose sight of the real world? Well, let's go back to the crisis then now. I mean, I'm really going to flip around because I think it's interesting to do it in a certain sense in this way. So what the hell was the crisis about at the end of the day? You know, why did it happen? Well, my opinion, and it's a, only an opinion, is the crisis was about debt and was about how heavily indebted societies were ever going to get back to economic growth. And this is the crisis that we're still in the middle of. You can look at the United States, you can look at the United Kingdom, and you look at Spain, you know. And, I mean, there are these very heavy levels of debt, either private or public, and largely, largely private in, 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 in these three cases, that, that are weighing down the whole economic system, and nobody really knows how to get out of this situation. And despite the fact that we can have uh, X percent, 2 percent, 3 percent growth, in any one year, where are we going? Now, if we look you know, at, at, at what's happened as a structural phenomenon, this is 1929, more or less, yeah? And so, obviously, everybody knows there was a huge peak in, 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 in debt in 29, and it, 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 it collapsed, yeah, or, or, or was collapsed. But, I mean, okay, then we went through a number of years, but suddenly, all of this has shot up again, and not only shot up again, it's, it's at a much higher level. We're talking here as percentage of GDP, to the level that we had in, 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 at the end of the 1920s. This is, I don't see anything here that really looks cyclical to me. I mean, there's not a wave fluctuation there. I mean, there are you know, some uh, wave-like movements up and down on the way up, but this is a steady climb up, and, 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 and at some point, this is going to have to come down, you know, because it's simply not sustainable into the future to have these levels of, of indebtedness and, and, and have a, a, an effectively functioning economy. Mm? So, my opinion is that the crisis is a question of excessive indebtedness. How we got there, this is what we're going to talk about. So, why was there so much debt? I mean, I'm just taking some examples here because this is a very quick run-through of, of the situation. But if we look, for instance, at a contrast I like to make mm, between Spain and Germany for a minute. If we look here, here's Here's the, 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 the rates of increase of, of household uh, mortgage debt in Spain between, where are we, um, 19... Uh, um, what was that? Anyway, the beginning, the, end of the, the beginning of the 1990s and, and the end of the first decade of the, of, of the 20th century. And we can see the rate of increase went up dramatically. We had between 20 and 30% increase in, 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 in mortgage indebtedness every year, and then suddenly we dropped off a cliff. Now, if we look at the case of Germany, we can see, in fact, that Germany dropped off the cliff, not in 2008, but 
in 2000. And after this, it really, German household indebtedness hasn't moved on a year-by-year -year basis. Now, I want to say two things about this kind of thing. That the, the, these, are kind of, um, these are kind of economic data that practical macroeconomists look into that very often are not really uh, internalized in the world of the academic macroeconomist in the first place. You know? The second place was that why is this huge difference? I mean, why is Spain like this? And why is Germany like this? You know, I mean, this is a basic question. I think, empirically, anybody who wants to think about uh, economics needs to have some kind of answer. Hmm? And one of the answers, I say, is 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 the idea that there was a failure of single-size monetary policy. If we look at Spain, you know, it's quite obvious. He, here is the the the, the ECB um, basic monetary policy rate. No, that was at 2% for a long period of time. Here's Spanish inflation. So here we have, it's like, a, uh, what can you say, an um, abscess in a, in a tooth, you know, that uh, in pasta, I was going to say, Luis, you know, that here is something that's causing a problem in the yellow area here that nobody really thought about. Okay, this was certainly a problem. But is this problem of interest rates sufficient to explain this massive difference between these two countries, you know? I mean, mm, this is a huge problem, I think, for how to manage the euro area uh, uh, and understanding why, why this happened. So, what I want to say is, obviously, the background to this situation was the existence of imbalances. If you look here, that we, you can see that, the, 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 as I say, the, the usual suspects, Germany, Japan and China, had huge current account surpluses. On the other hand, the debtor countries, the United States, uh, the US, and Spain, had, had significant and sizable deficits. So the first question I want to ask, because it was very common at the time, we're going to see this with, with uh, Caballero, really, to look at these as economists, do we need to think about unusual, rare, fat tail events? Isn't there something structural going on here that theory needs to talk about and think about? You know, It's not just... Uh, something that's very, very, very uh, uh, difficult to foresee or unusual. I mean, I, I would say this is pretty clear. So, okay, let's go on then. A number of points that come out of the Caballero paper that I think are interesting. First of all, what, what, an economic system is a complex system. So, my first question is, does complexity necessarily imply unpredictability? I mean, this is what Caballero thinks. No? The idea is to place at the center of the analysis the fact that complexity of macroeconomic interactions limits the knowledge we can ever attain. Yeah? So mm, Caballero's view is that it's a very complexity of the situation that means that economic knowledge is always going to be imperfect. Yeah? In thinking about a a analytic tools and macroeconomic policies, we should seek those that are robust to enormous uncertainty is another important word in, in Caballero's vocabulary to which we are confined and we should consider what this complexity does to the actions and reactions of the economic agents whose behaviour we are supposed to be capturing. Let's go back. You know, I don't see too much uncertainty. I mean, in fact, you know, the IMF have done projections up to 2015 where these imbalances more or less continue. You know, I don't see that this is, you know, that, that, that these levels of unpredictability and so these are pretty predictable at the moment. The question is what we're going to do about them and the damage that they've been doing. You know, another problem, the prob well, the problem of unpredictability. And this is an interesting one because I think it's a bit of a, 
you know, a kind of prejudice that's easy to put up. He said, in my view, the conviction that one can foretell a severe crisis in advance is mostly a manifestation of, how do you say that, paradolia, mm -hmm. or the, uh, or the psychological, uh, psychological phenomenon that makes people, uh, I've cut a sentence in the middle here, that makes people see faces and animals in clouds and the like. So, really, is this what economics is reduced to? You know, some kind of uh, uh, witch doctor type. Uh, it's very appropriate, really, to talk about this here in the, the London School of Economics, of course, because um, Ambrose Evan Pritchard's grandfather, uh, the, the anthropologist uh, uh, Evans Pritchard, was here studying uh, exactly uh, methodologies of, of, of divination and witchcraft among the Ezande. And, and uh, is this really the best that we... Uh, the economists can do. I mean, I just refuse to accept this kind of, 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 of attitude. I think that if, if, if macroeconomic theory hasn't got to grips, you know, with, 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 with the dynamics of economic processes, then this is a failing of the theories we're working with. You know, the people who say, look, we've got a problem here, are not necessarily witch doctors. You know, there may be people who are trying to raise specific questions and look uh, at empirical um, phenomena that, that, that need to be contrasted with the theories in order to try and find some way to move this forward. Of course, you could say that economic theory can never be a science. Because why? Because human behavior is unpredictable or, or that we don't understand the motivations of, of human behavior adequately or whatever. And, um, or we could come to this old traditional uh, Geiser's uh, vision staffed and uh, division between human and, and, and social science and say the natural science, sorry, the uh, human sciences and natural sciences, the natural sciences are, 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 are certain sciences, the human sciences are always going to be variable because they're based on human behavior. Well, personally, but it's only an opinion, I think it's possible to do macroeconomics without getting obsessed with, it, with, with, with this division. And I, you know, I'm not really convinced of this. Now, another question that comes up is the question of, of the, the heart of, of macroeconomic theory is what's called the, the, the neoclassical core, which, which Cavaliero said, the core approach to macroeconomics, as is taught in most postgraduate problems and appears in leading journals, begins with a neoclassical growth model. This model is then developed in a into a st stochastic form. So there's an idea that basically, following the, 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 the fundamentals of, of, of the neoclassical theory, that some kind, every economy has some kind of steady state, uh, tendential growth um, level, and, and, and that the, the, the problems that appear in economic uh, uh, processes are to do with um, uh, distancing or aberrations that, that, that separate the, 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 the actual growth level from the underlying trend growth level. Well, this is beautiful stuff. And, and now let's go back to Solo, who actually formulated the, the, the neoclassical growth model. What Solo thought, and I think this is important, is that all theory depends on assumptions which are not quite true. Again, it's quite interesting to start talking about this kind of thing in the LSE, which when I was here was a place where Karl Popper and, and Imre Lakatos were doing quite a lot of thinking about how you formulated uh, scientific theories, how you validated them, how you tested them. I think economists would do a, uh, you know, themselves a good favor if they started really um, to look at the kind of work they do in the light of how 
we relate the theories that we formulate in terms of the, 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 the realities we attempt to describe and attempt to predict. You know, what we need to make a, I mean, the basic thing, we're all agreed. I think Solar was a great economist, or is still a great economist, but he's still alive. Uh, but all theory depends on assumptions which are not quite true. We have to make approximations. That's what it makes a theory. The art of successful theory making is to make the inevitable simplifying assumption in such a way the final results are not very sensitive. Um, uh, a, a crucial assumption is one at, uh, on which the conclusions do depend sensitively and it is important that crucial assumptions be reasonably realistic. So we need, we, we need to make some assumptions, but those assumptions need to be realistic ones, not the, the, the kind of thing that Caballero, um, where, where, where was it, right at the beginning, uh, talks about, which is the world, which uh, uh, the, the precision that's been achieved about its own world, with the precision that's been achieved about the real one. This area of distanciation, there needs to be much more interaction between the, the findings of, of abstract economic theory, the models that are generated, and, and, and the real world that, the, that people live in. Um, okay, so one of, one of um, these, uh, these assumptions, I'm not going to go uh, uh, into too much now because we're going to get too technical, is, is, is the idea of steady state growth. And I've found two societies here, um, the United States and France, where you can see these are 10-year averages of GDP. You can see more or less, you know, that there's a kind of trend growth line there very, very easily, yeah? So, I mean, it's more or less, in, in, the, in the case of France and the United States, um, uh, around, uh, maybe the, the US one's a bit higher, no? It's, it's, it's nearer 2.75 or something like this, and in France, more, more or less 2%. You can see that there's some kind, of, you could say there's a trend growth here, you know? But if we look at other countries, you know, um, Japan, uh, Italy, Germany, the picture's very different, you know? That, that what we see is that, is, is that, that, that growth hits quite a high level and then drops off again. So the idea that, that, that there's some kind of uniform underlying level of, of, um, of trend growth, it seems to me a bit uh, you know, mm, difficult to support in terms of, of actual reality. And I'm only giving this, I don't want to really get in too much into the ins and outs of whether, you know, what's the best way to look at this. Rather, I want to say that, that what's the relation between the theory and the reality? How do people go about testing these things? I've got a theory, and it's only you know, a theory that I work with other people, that maybe aging processes you know, that were never considered really in the, in, in, in the, in the original um, uh, solar model and, and, and uh, subsequent various variations of it have some, some, something to do with this. And, and in, indeed, uh, uh, a person I work with called Klaus Wisterson has produced uh, another kind of model that I think it'd be too complicated to go into here to try and explain how uh, these imbalances have developed in relation to, to, to the problem of, uh, in, in relation to the, 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 the aging of um, uh, populations. Now that what we can see is that, that very young populations um, could well have uh, a significant uh, current account deficit. You know, that, that Populations as they age could go, like in Germany and Japan, to, to, to um, current account surpluses, and that the, the, uh, at some point these populations could eventually end up with, with current account deficits. This is just a hypothesis, but this kind of hypothesis is testable. This is really what I want to get. I mean, what mm, macroeconomics needs to do, and this, this hypothesis could be 
correct or incorrect. At least it can make some kind of predictions and some kind of hypo uh, uh, um, prognosis that could be falsified or, or, or not. And I think one of the problems with most macroeconomic th theory is that it hasn't got into the idea of, of, of doing this. Okay, that was a brief run around as a background. Now we get into what everybody is more, perhaps more expecting, which is the, the but, but I think the two things fit together to some extent. You know, the, the, um, the role of the internet. Yeah, okay, so I think there are various phenomena associated with the, with the internet um, that have changed the way in which we can look at practical economic um, phenomena. The first is, as I say, the arrival of the sell-side analyst. You know, what do I mean by that? There were, obviously, there were always people doing mm, these kind of studies, yeah? But what's happened today is that this kind of information, hello, and here's Demetrius in, in the back there. This, this, this is a piece of his work on, on, on for, for Nomura on, on the Greek economy. Now, I mean, mm, this kind of material is just going round uh, um, with a great velocity uh, and a great facility due to the, 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 the existence of the internet. You can receive this kind of thing if you're in the right networks, and this is what maybe we come back to, um, in, 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 um, with a great frequency, and it changes the kind of access you can have to opinions. Yeah, it's not like reading The Economist, reading The Financial Times, reading The Wall Street Journal. You know, we've got people who are putting up uh, uh, systematic attempts at analysis every week. And another thing I would say about this for people who are studying theoretical economics in the university, because, in fact, Demetrius did study uh, uh, economics here, is, is that once you get into a bank and you start doing this kind of thing, you start to get a whole different set of ideas about what economics is about, because you're applying... Uh, what you've learned in the university to very, very concrete situations and trying to come up with numbers. Those numbers, as I say, could be, in terms of sell-side analysis, used by a bank to promote uh, a particular objective, but maybe you uh, are, are learning something at the same time. Um, the second thing I would draw attention to is the existence of new media. You know, the, the first of these is, is, is the blogs, and then um, the, the second is, 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 is a large kind of um, mm, economics aggregators like the, 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 the Nori Rubini's organization, Rubini uh, Global do. I mean, the, the, the very existence, I would argue, of, 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 of the kind of uh, websites like, like Rubini changed the, the quantity and the volume of economic information available to anybody who wants to follow um, uh, mm, macroeconomic phenomena and, and these kind of things mm, the blogs function as a kind of um, going back to that IMF thing you know alternative opinions uh, non-mainstream opinions opinions that people aren't taking into account see for example let's take the case of a, a, a doctor dealing with a patient you know I mean what's the best way to handle a clinical problem to say you know well this patient has obviously got this, this illness and now let's send them to the operating theater and all get on with it. Or is it interesting to have other doctors put an argument and say, well, maybe it's not this, you know, maybe if we, if we, the treatment required is not this one, because maybe the diagnosis is wrong before we send this guy in and chop the leg off, you know? And in economics, we don't seem to do enough of that, you know? We just chop the leg off and see if it works, 
you know, <laughs> often in Greece. And, 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 and so, you know, for instance, uh, uh, blogs as a, as a means of communication or, you know, uh, uh, alternative networks of information like, like, uh, like Rubini Global can be very, very interesting. Another, another factor in the, 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 the new age of um, economic information is the existence of social networks either Facebook or, or the most uh, uh, well-known case with, with Twitter is, is, is perhaps WikiLeaks, but I mean these kind of, of instantaneous access to, to other kinds of, 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 <coughs> of information, other kinds of opinion, I mean I think really have, have very much changed. I mean, for example, I put up there my Facebook, you know, I mean, people say to me, well, Edward, what do you read? I said, well, actually, I read virtually nothing, because what happens is that people pick, put things up on my Facebook, and I, I, and I follow the links along, you know, so that, that things like Facebook act as filters which help you to see what it is you want to look at and what it is you don't, and of course, we don't want to fall in the gap uh, or in the trap of only looking at uh, what they put on our Facebook, but I mean, it does help, you know, to look at... Um, you know, uh, without reading lots and lots of day-to-day -day, uh, information, to go very quickly uh, to to what might interest us. And, and, and another important part of the the, the internet that, that I think has changed the way people can do macroeconomics is that is the high-volume data. You know, that I put up here Eurostat and and the IMF uh, World Economic Outlook database. I mean, these people provide on an almost daily basis large quantities of, of statistical data that you can download, you can play around, this is how I make charts, you know, you can play around with and, and, and um, you, know, how many you know, how many economists in previous generations had this kind of information available to work with? I mean, we are extraordinarily privileged and how is it that we've managed to make so little out of having so much? That's one of the questions I would ask. Because really it is very easy but the, the thing is to start doing it and you find out how easy it is another little little piece of information that I have up here the role of qualitative data because people like to think that hard science you know these, these very mathematized models that they churn out you know you, you need real quantitative data but if we look at, it, at the practice of economics I can think off the top of my head as I put up here two examples of what we call qualitative data that are based on surveys rather than, than, than mm, the traditional quantitative methodologies that give really, really good in information about how any particular economy is pro progressing. One is the, the, the purchasing managers indexes which really is mm, form one of the leading indicators of where uh, economies are going at any moment in time for those that bother or have access to this kind of information. The second is the labor force survey. I mean, the labor force survey for me, you know, is much more interesting than the, 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 the simple uh, mm, unemployment data that is registered in terms of signings at the, uh, at the labor exchanges or whatever it is. But this is qualitative data, not quantitative data. So it's another thing that I think e economists need to think about. Okay, secondly, uh, uh, what then, sixthly, Okay, sharing uh, information and perspectives. Now, one of the things that influenced me most um, 
when I came to the LSE was we'll, we'll, we'll to read this book by Marcel Mauss called The Gift. Uh, interestingly also I've added the, this extra little bit from Amazon which shows how this is also you can you can actually read this now or chunks of it on Amazon without bothering to go to a bookshop to read it which is another thing about access to in internet but I mean the the whole idea um, that the the uh, that Mouse who was uh, an anthropologist uh, looked into was w w um, not every culture is driven by, by the same kind of objective. I mean, in, in, and, and, and in this book, Mao studied uh, societies were, which were called, you know, gift societies, where people really uh, obtained social prestige by giving to other people rather than trying to accumulate. And curiously, this is exactly uh, the, the, the kind of uh, ethos which uh, Pekka Himanen talks about in terms of uh, the, the internet environment, with the, 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 the hacker mentality and the hacker ethic. Because again, we've got a, a culture which is based on, on sharing and giving information and prestige that, that is based on sharing and giving uh, um, rather than simply um, being motivated as homo economicus traditionally would be imagined to function in terms of economic, simple and crude economic incentives. There are incentives. But the incentives are much more all-encompassing than a very kind of monocultural one. And, and while I'm here, I stuck in a quote from Peter Drucker. You know, this goes back, this was really in the 1990s that the new information technology, internet and email, have practically eliminated the physical cost of communication. So, I mean, here's another thing with coasts and the theories of, 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 of information. The costs of information have come down enormously. This is another thing that makes it possible for somebody to do economic analysis, as, he says, as Louis says, in their pyjamas from home, uh, without having the whole paraphernalia of a, a, um, a, you know, a, a university department to back it up. So, he, here's another. Um, right, so, to finish off, a few predictions. You know, I mean, where's got, we, we, it was very easy, you know, or it is very easy now to talk about what went wrong in previous economic crises or in the last one. What's the next crisis going to look like? Well, I've stuck one um, uh, on the on the board here, Japan. As I said, I've seen it, the future, but does it work? Let's have a look at Japan. I mean, the the the. Um, the first thing we know about Japan is it's got and had huge deflation for a long period of time. We also know that rather than having this miraculous, you know, uh, uh, self-perpetuating trend growth that I was talking about before from the, 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 the standard neoclassical model um, predicts, uh, uh, trend, trend growth in Japan has steadily been declining. At the same time, uh, fertility in Japan has declined to well below replacement rate and, and shows no sign of recovering. And lastly, you know, the, the debt to GDP, whether you look at it in the gr gross jet debt or, pr or, or, or net debt of, of the Japanese government, I mean, they're hitting uh, by 2012, according to IMF predictions, nearly 240% of GDP. I mean, Luis, this makes the Spanish debt, the, the, the public sector debt, look trivial. You know, it's, it's more than three times bigger. You know? And yet people are quite happy with what's going on in Japan. This is a surprising situation. People say, well, Japan can print their own debt. 
the, in, the, in, 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 in their own currency, they have a current account surplus, and yeah, well, this is, this, is, this is okay, but to me, this sounds like a kind of perpetual motion machine, you know, and, and I don't understand how people can think it can work forever. Yeah? It's working, it's continuing, but look what's happening to the, to the debts of GDP. I mean, one day or another, there's going to be a problem here, but why is it we find it so difficult to do something about this now? Ten years from now, that's going to be, you know, something's going to happen there. Or, to take another example, let's look at Spain, you know, uh, our, our, our homeland in one way or another, Luis. You know, the, the, the one thing that strikes me, I, this is a chart, it's a really fascinating chart, of, of, of the, the, the blue part at the bottom is, is indebtedness of, the, of builders, okay? And, and, and the, 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 the beige part, or whatever it is, is, is the, the developers. Now, the hypothesis of the Bank of Spain is that this is a situation like the situation that what we've got in Spain at the moment between, I have to look a bit more carefully, yeah, 1992 to, ni to 1995, ar around, around here somewhere, okay? But look at these proportions between the builders and the developers. And then look at the proportions of the builders and developers today. I mean, something structurally in, in the way they financed the, 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 the housing boom has changed enormously. But yet you look in the, in, in the discussions of the problem and you won't see hardly a reference. I mean, I only really thought about this when I made the graph. This is, is another thing that I'm trying to draw attention to. What I spend a lot of the time doing is making these charts and looking at them. Because rather than looking at mathematical models, I prefer to go to these, um, you know, uh, well, well, yeah, statistics office that I'm drawing attention to, get the data, which is easy to get, run up a graph and have a look what, or a chart and have a look what's going on and, and, and I mean obviously one of the things that you can draw attention to is, is that the, the, this exposure of the whole Spanish banking system that you keep in fact drawing attention to to, to, to the developer loans the, 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 quant, the level of exposure has dropped very, very little despite the fact that all the Spanish banks have accumulated large quantities of property on their books you know this is in addition to that still you know, the, 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 so, I mean, what's happening here? And then we, another indicator on Spain, you know, is the, 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 the external debt, you know, uh, which is, continues to rise as long as you have a current account deficit. That Spain has reduced dramatically its current account deficit. You read the IMF documents and you see it's a marvellous achievement, but we've still got a deficit. So this debt is still going to go up until the day we have a surplus and then it start, can start to come down. I mean, it's not a very difficult thing to understand. But I mean, you know, so is this sustainable? I don't think so, you know? It, mm, is it so hard to see? Yeah? Can we, so as I say here, can we really see nothing in advance? Here's another thing. I mean, back in 2008 with, with the, my friend Klaus Wissersen, we made a list of countries that, that, that could be likely after the crisis uh, you know, to start to grow. Yeah? Now if you look at the World Bank, um, they, list, uh, they give a list of nine countries that have suddenly start really attracting funds and developing after the crisis happened. In fact, uh, apart from Mexico, I think all the rest of them are in this list. You know? I mean, I don't think it's really so difficult to, to, to understand what's going on if you don't have to look at everything through a mathematical model. You know, this, 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 so if we, if we go all the, back to, all the way back to near the beginning and this 
Um, uh, what did she say? Uh, I don't think you need to think about uh, paradoilia. I mean, I think there are simple techniques available that you don't have to become like a, a magician or an astrologer or whatever. You know, that you can work with data, test against data, you know, and, and, and formulate hypotheses and work on them, you know, in a very, very simple way. And this is one of the things I think that the internet has made possible that really was impossible before. This is what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get across. Um, and finally, well, uh, well, maybe it's not finally because yeah, I've got one, one last one. That, that I, uh, one that fascinates me at the moment is 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 is, is the latest uh, uh, statements of Ben Bernanke about the QE2 policy in the United States and 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 the impact on 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 emerging markets. And he said, well, this is a, an extract from a news item. With regard to commodity inflation in developing economies, Ben Bernanke asserted that central banks there, i.e. in the, the developing economies, were equipped to deal with it. They could raise interest to quash price pressures and also allow the exchange rate of their currencies to appreciate uh, to counter inflation. So, I mean, it's a very, very standard view that, 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 that there's n essentially, you know, we're working with a very old-fashioned model here. You know, I'm sure Bernanke actually thinks beyond this, but he's arguing as if he was working with a, um, uh, an old-fashioned model, you know, w where he's basically saying, well, you've got a problem, you raise interest rates. But in Turkey, they just said, but if we raise interest rates, we're going to have more money coming in. We're not going to raise interest rates. In fact, we're going to drop interest rates to try and not attract so much money. We're in a more complex world than the models of... <laughs> Uh, 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 earlier generations are, are allowed, and again, the other the uh, the the, the other uh, alternative is to allow the currencies to appreciate. But again, in in many South Africa, Turkey, Brazil, India, people are desperately worried about their exchange rate appreciating too rapidly because of the damaging impact that this has on on, on the development of their manufacturing industry. That they at least recognise that they need, and that development is a process. And, and they don't need just to develop to meet the needs of, of Spain or United Kingdom or the United States who are stuck in a mess, you know. The, the, the emerging economies need to develop for their own needs and their own interests, you know. And, um, and to contrast a little bit with another, uh, another point of view is Richard Fisher, who's the president of the Federal uh, Reserve Bank of Dallas, who I think has long recognized that monetary policy as classically imagined in, in, in terms of, you know, uh, 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 um, a single economy, you know, with a, with a single monetary policy. As he said, glo globalization is an ecosystem in which economic potential is no longer defined or contained by political and geographic boundaries. This is the world we live in, not the world that Ben Bernanke is talking about here. Economic activity is no, no bounds in a global economy. A globalized world is one where goods, services, financial capital, machinery, money, workers and ideas migrate to wherever they're most valued and work together most efficiently, flexibly and secure, securely. So for me, this is you know, a deeply theoretic, theoretically flawed perspective. What, what happened in Iceland should never have happened on this view because the government in Iceland could have taken the, the, the adequate monetary uh, policy measures which in fact, as they took them, they simply attracted more money until they went bust. You know? And this view is the view of the future, which is we have a single global economy, yeah, 
where, where, where the national boundaries are much less important than they used to be and we need a change of mindset and, and again I'm not arguing any of these things dogmatically as if they have to be the truth in a way that, 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 that anybody else has got the truth simply that, that, that the whole macroeconomic debate needs to become more empirical move much more towards studying com concrete cases and comparing and contrasting <coughs> And, it, uh, and accepting that the world is changing. Hmm? The world is changing in terms of globalization. The world is changing in terms of population dynamics. We've got uh, emerging economies. We've got aging economies. None of this seems to exist in the timeless world of neoclassical economics. This is part of the problem. And finally, to end with a quote from Keynes, even though I'm personally not especially a Keynesian, I'm not trying to make any... Uh, but I, I, this one I like. Economists set themselves too easy and too useless a task if in te tempestuous seasons they can only tell us that when the storm is long past, the ocean is flat again. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, Edward. I, I think it was, it was very interesting and, and, and we, we learned a lot. I, I guess your message is, was Caballero thinks microeconomics is hard, you think microeconomics is easy. And it's, it, I mean, some of what you said uh, argues in that direction. So. Um, we're going to have some, some questions and answers and have some time to think about what you said. Let me, let me just start by, by defending a bit my, my macroeconomists colleagues. Um, some, in some sense, doesn't help solve the puzzle because some of the things you criticize them for not doing, I think they do do. I mean, they all prefer the labor force survey similarly to you and, and they don't use registered unemployment in their models. Um, they do look at qualitative, qualitative stuff and yet, they, you're right. I mean, they miss they miss a lot. I mean, and and and, and you're right that when you saw some, uh, you show a graph that shows that the only time that the debt has been as high as in 1929 is in 2007. You have to worry, like, okay, something is wrong. Uh, a similar piece of data in Spain is that uh, the the deposits, um, the the debt to deposit ratios in the Spanish banks never went over 80 percent for all history until 2000. In 2002, it got to 100 percent, and then in 2006, it got to 180 or 190 percent. So, so there are numbers that, that you look at them, that you just graph like you do, and, and you think, what's going on? And, and here comes the question. So, so my question is, is, there is a part which is um, uh, maybe not looking carefully at the data, and I wonder if there's a part which is incentives, right? So. So um, Michael Lewis has this nice piece in, Vanity, in the current Vanity Fair in which he talks about Ireland and the banking crisis and he says how uh, people miss the crisis and in, to some extent it has to do with, with people not realizing. But then he tells the story about the Merrill Lynch banker who did a survey and wrote a report saying that all these banks, Irish banks that were borrowing like crazy were basically lending afterwards the money with absolutely no criterion whatsoever they were, what they were doing. And the guy was fired and the report was withdrawn until our FT Alphaville colleagues have put it back, found it and put it back on the internet a couple of days back. Um, how much of people missing the big picture has to do with people not wanting to see the big picture and how much does to do with uh, not knowing what the big picture is? So, so is, uh, do incentives by analysts, all these analysts you're talking about, play a big part? Is it that they just don't want to write reports where they say that the king is naked or, 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 or they don't know? Which, which of the two things do you think? Well, I mean, I think there's a mixture of things, no? because if you look at the euro at the moment, there's a lot of incentives, for example, from time to time, 
to short the euro. You know, I mean, not everybody wants or needs to believe that the eurozone is going to come out safe and sound uh, from the crisis. So, but I mean, I, I think there's a problem that goes to it. You're touching the right area, but maybe it's not simple. This is why I go back to all this stuff about mouse on mouse and and different ways of thinking about things. But I mean, the the the, the people are simply moved by economic incentives. I mean, I just feel that people have no economic incentive directly, you know, uh, in, the, in, in the most immediate sense to think about a situation, um, are not necessarily willing to consider alternative explanations of what's going on. I mean, you could say, it's, why, why, why are people in Spain really not willing to consider very deeply the, the kind of things that you and I say? Because it's true, you know, that people People, you know, you're, you're quoted in the press, I'm quoted in the press, and it all goes on and people don't take too much notice. It could be that simply because they've got their house owners, that 85% of the Spanish population own houses, that they're stakeholders in, in not wanting to understand, uh, you know, what's being said. Or it could be, you could offer, I mean, I just think there's no one simple explanation. You could offer a kind of evolutionary psychological explanation that we were brought up uh, in circumstances genetically over hundreds of thousands of years to, to always go for the better option and try to avoid the worst one. I mean, I don't know why it is. It does happen. Okay, so um, I open to, to people who may have uh, questions. Uh, there will be somebody passing around and giving you the microphone, so uh, we look forward to, to hearing you, your, your questions and your comments. Up there, please. If I can take you back to near the beginning when you asked the question, what is reality, um, then you took us forward to economics models where people used a set of assumptions and you said they had to be reasonably realistic. Do you not think that maybe the problem is that economics tries to enforce one answer out of that when in fact without wishing to sound too much like Doctor Who or the X-Files there are actually several alternatives and that's where things have gone wrong. Yeah, I mean, if this is thrown at me, I think it's one, I mean, I've I, I skated over a lot of things in there and I mean, one of the, 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 I mean, Caballero focuses on the idea that complexity is to do with uncertainty. You know, I, I, I would very much this is tie in. Um, I, I think economic systems are complex systems. You know, I don't think they're that easy to model. I think that's one of the problems that they've got with modeling them. You know, and I think with complex problems, you know, I mean, first of all, we don't know what reality is. Okay, well, but let's leave that aside. But the only way to begin to approach, uh, 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 um, to 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 get insight into a complex problem, is precisely to play around with various perspectives and and and, and different points of view. Which is one of the things, fortunately, the internet really helps us to do. I mean, this is one of the reasons why people who play around so long at the internet can get insights. This is really what you were looking for in the whole thing, I suppose. Uh, insights into situations that others, you know, who, 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 who just look into uh, the version of reality that they can see in a mathematical model or the version of reality that, that, that they're encouraged to see working as bank analysts 
kind of miss. I mean, so, yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, first of all, you know, there's no ultimate reality out there, you know, that reality we make is to some extent constructed for ourselves, you know. In, I mean, even GDP data is, is constructed according to, you know, r rules and, and, and methodologies that are laid down in advance and, 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 and involve a great deal of estimation, for instance, as we know perfectly well in, in the Spanish case. And, 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 you know, the best way to get access to this is to have the maximum input of, 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 of different perspectives that are possible, I would say. More questions? Well, thank you for the uh, fascinating talk. I, I was uh, honestly struggling to read the axis of some of the graphs, but I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, follow, I follow what you did say. And I think that um, you made a very good case that some macroeconomists missed the crisis. And, but I think that you know, for me to understand, just to get a more personal sense of what is it that the blogs are offering now, I'd be, I'd be interested in, in, in also hearing about your own successes, mm -hmm. uh, which I suppose that you haven't gone into detail for humility or, you know, uh, but I mean, I'm not, no, I'm not that familiar with your blog, yeah. um, and I'd be interested to understand, first of all, what were your, what, what calls you got right, um, then how did that have an impact, and just sort of like the, the nitty gritty of the story. Okay, well, yeah, this, this is, okay, we're going, going on another level, thank you, yeah, you're, you're perfectly right. I mean, mm, well, I suppose in the first place, you know, that, that we're talking about the Spanish economy, yeah, that, that right from the summer of 2007, I took the view that this was quite a serious situation, you know, and that was going to need uh, important um, remedies to, to try and put it straight, which basically people, well, people are still fundamentally denying this, this situation. I mean, it's much more admitted now than it was three years ago, but we've still got, you know, no, we're still only talking about 20 uh, billion euros to be put in the, in, in the, in the cacas and not a real cleaning out of the, of the Spanish system. So that, that would be the first thing. Going back mm, beyond that, but I mean, the, the, really I don't want to make any, any really special claims about me. I, I just think it's possible to do macroeconomics using different tools. This is really what I, I could get things right or I could get things wrong. I think I've got some things right. I'm sure I've got some things wrong, you know, just like anybody else because we're all human. But one of the things we should be able to do is, is learn from that. Now, I mean, in general, I thought the euro wasn't going to work without, you know, uh, considerable problems. Yeah? And, and we've seen that it wasn't going to work without considerable problems, you know. A lot of, of macroeconomists, but I don't think anybody, you know, uh, has any special uh, privilege in this. I think there were a lot of people in, in the 1990s, including Rudy Dornbusch, that somebody showed me today, who's a, really, I think, the, the, the best German macroeconomist is dead now, unfortunately, uh, of the last 25 years, and was at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And, you know, a lot of people were worried you know, what was going to happen with the euro, with the kind of institutional structure that we had setting it up. And we've now seen that there were deficiencies in the, in the institutional structure, and we are in the process of ch making changes. Whether the changes are going to be enough, or, or how much further we need to go, this is where the debate is in this moment. But I mean, for example, this was one thing that was obvious to me. What, one of the things I got wrong, I, I mean, in, in a sense, that I always thought the euro was going to break down in Italy. Hmm? And in the end, it broke down in Greece. Yeah? The problems are different, and the reasons why the problems are different are, 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 are specific problems to talk about. 
the, going back to the Jap Japan thing, I mean, the Japan has still got interest rates near enough at zero percent and I mean all through the last decade I mean say so they couldn't raise interest rates and they haven't been able to one of the things we're now finding is that maybe not only Japan but the United States the United Kingdom the Eurozone are going to have great difficulties getting out of this hole which has been what, what they call in Japan the ZERP policy zero interest rate policy you know maybe that's going to be more difficult and then we need to think well why are we all in this you know because like 30 years ago nobody was in zero interest rates why suddenly have all these economies got zero interest rates I mean we need some explanations for that yeah debt is part of the problem but there may be other factors you know I, I've highlighted for instance I, you know I, I, this morning I was listening to, to, to analysts on CNBC and, and, and Japan's gone back into recession you know in the last quarter of, 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 of 2010 and, and, and all of a sudden people are saying yeah well you've got to imagine that Japan's got a very negative demography now five years ago nobody was saying that nobody it doesn't mean that it's the only factor or the most important factor or anything but I mean I, I, I got interested in Japan precisely uh, around the turn of the century because I read a piece by Paul Krugman where he said you know maybe part of the problem that they've got with all this deflation in Japan is a demographic one and I, I worked a hypothesis on that it could be right or could be wrong I don't you know we'll see with time and, and, and so I don't know I, I don't know if I've answered your, your, your question these are some of the topics I've worked on more questions? Yes, we have a question there. I'm wondering if you could help me with solutions. I, I think I've followed a lot of your observations and mm -hmm. analysis, and uh, I think at the beginning the Chair mentioned that recent events have make us especially interested in this. And, you know, if the, if the Egyptian revolution has been an internet revolution, uh, and because of the internet, the people have been able to overcome what a dictatorship imposed and, and has also challenged what the international community including the European Union and the UK and the United States and the United Nations didn't achieve. Uh, I think also in terms of, I probably haven't got the language, you, you seem to be suggesting that perhaps we don't need academic economists because they haven't spotted a lot of things and I'm interested in the applied uh, it, it would appear that you seem to be saying that the professional in finance and economics haven't persuaded governments to spot anything and this, this revolution in the internet uh, I think you mentioned that you know if we if if we're reasonably intelligent and we're sitting at home in our pajamas, we can probably understand it as much as the professional academics or, or, or the decision takers in, in, in government. Uh, I'm wondering if you're saying so. What uh, is there a way that we can tap the collective? understanding that they, those sitting on their settees in their pyjamas with all this extra access, how can we tap this, you know, to live in a more peaceful and prosperous world? And one of the difficulties I have with, if I dare say it in my premises, some of the 
academic world, there's, there's, there's this sort of pretense of objectivity and neutrality and don't ask me really what we do about it. I'm just pointing out that I've got a whole load of questions and I just wondered if, uh, if you could help us into solutions as to what we do to tap this collective sitting on the settees in your pyjamas that, that is much more makes more sense than what governments and academics have failed to spot in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, the, 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 there's a number of points that you're raising. I mean, I, I think the first thing I say is that, 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 that what I'm arguing isn't that, that the world is going to be run by people sitting on the sofa in their pyjamas, but that, and just go back to the beginning, that, that there's too easy a consensus, you know, um, because there's too easy, people arrive too easily at the idea that there's an objective uh, analysis like we can see in the kind of standard mathematical, the core models that Caballero talks about, that people become obsessed with. And that tends to be associated with, with being closed to alternative points of view, you know. And one of the things that's obvious, you know, is that we need a much broader idea of economic activity, you know, of people who, who is participating and who is not participating in the formulation of policy. I mean, I think that's quite important for the future, you know. I mean, if we look at the banks, I mean, why are the banks taking so many bad decisions in certain countries? Because really they're, they're very closed to the idea, you know, that they could be doing anything wrong and they don't listen. They don't listen for, possibly for economic interest reasons or possibly for personality reasons or whatever reason you want to give, but the, the, there's far too much that is closed you know, to, to contrasting points of view, even, as we saw in this, this evaluation report, going up to the top levels in the IMF. You know? So that's something that has to change. You know? if, it, 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 I mean, the situation in Egypt is, a, is another kind of situation because it's, it's a question of, of people having access to very basic kinds of information, you know, not, if you like, in inverted commas, more sophisticated, just simply to know what's going on and the power of, of the internet to, to transmit information. And, and, but I mean, this is very important, obviously, as, as Mr. Trichet uh, recognized, you know, in the Euro debt crisis. I mean, the, 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 the information travels very, very quickly now, and, and, and this can mean that, 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 that positioning on, 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 on government uh, spreads in different countries moves very quickly from one country to another. So the internet influences situations positively, in the, as you're saying, in the Egyptian sense, but can influence negatively in, 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 in a certain way of looking at it, in another sense, because information moves around very quickly, and this can be, you know, perturbatory for, 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 for stability. So it's, it's not, I don't think it's a one-sided uh, situation at all. Um, you know, I'm not saying that academic economists have got nothing to contribute. I think they have a lot to contribute. But the problem is they don't think they have as much to contribute as they claim. I think this is, this, is, this is different. I think they're part of the picture, the same as, as, as economists who work in the central bank or bank analysts have part of the picture. But there's a much broader community of people out there, and there needs to be more interaction between the different participants. And in particular, the, the iconoclastic, uh, um, quantitative, uh, hard-nosed economic model people need to understand that they need to be more open you know, to, to, to other kinds of inputs. And, 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 and to, to try and think what real relation, as, as Cavalier is, is raised, their models have. Uh, I mean, I just think part of the problem sometimes is people just get obsessed with the model they're looking at and forget that there's a reality out there that goes beyond the model. 
There, there is a, there is part. I mean, if, if you if you allow me to to interject, so so part of what you're saying is a bit the Wikipedia versus Encyclopedia Britannica phenomenon, right? Where nobody who writes in Wikipedia is one tenth as as much of an expert as the person who wrote the Encyclopedia Britannica chapter, and yet at the end, Wikipedia ends up being right fast through crowdsourcing, it works pretty well. And, and, and I think you're right that it would be nice to mobilize all that knowledge in multiple areas, and economic forecasting could be, could be one. Um, of course, economics as a, quote, as a science is trying to do something else as well, which is not just forecast what's going on and try to help us understand, but it's trying to, trying to progress, trying to build something on top of something else, and, and, and the idea of model building and testing, et cetera, that, that normal science routine of just doing little progress little by little, where everybody is kind of spending their entire careers on, on one axis on one of your charts here, or one little bump on one of the charts, it's, it's, it's also very useful, I think. It's just, different. It's just a different um, orientation. Um, but, I, but I think your, your point is, is well taken. It would be nice to, to find ways to muster the wisdom of crowds in, in these areas as well. On that note, um, I want to thank you for, for coming to London and, and giving us a very, very interesting uh, thought and a very interesting perspective on what's going on in, in, the, in, the, in the internet and, and, and the macroeconomics of the internet time. And uh, we look forward to seeing you around more times. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much.